One of my favorite things to do as a little boy was to blow up a big balloon and then let it fly out of control all around the room. You've done that before, right? Once you let go, who knows where that sucker's going to land? Hopefully not in a dirty dog bowl or grandma's hair. Today's sermon text has all the potential of a blown-up balloon in the hand of a little kid. Today we see how the gospel impacts the nitty-gritty relationships we live in. The up-close, cannot-hide-my-sin-from-you, up-close relationships of husbands and wives, parents and children, and bosses and employees. We're going to read this entire text, but we're we're only going to cover the first part, the, the husbands and wives. We're going to leave the other two for later. And even as I cover husbands and wives, I feel like I'm just barely getting the tip of the iceberg. So today's sermon is titled, New Creations, Old Situations, Part 1. I'm going to read the passage we will be looking into these next few weeks. Today we'll focus on the first two verses. Now, as I read, I think you'll gather why this text can be like a balloon full of air in a little kid's fingers. We are in Colossians uh, chapter 3. Uh, verse 18, and we're going into the first verse of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we confess our need of your wisdom this morning as we ponder this text. Help us to grow in knowledge of you and your ways. Help us to see the sin inside us and how it distorts your holy word. Help us by the Holy Spirit to see the beauty of your design for husbands and wives and give us power to receive and rest in your truth. Amen. Take a look at this drawing. I'm I'm sure most of you have seen it before. The, The oldest version appeared on a German postcard. This version, the most famous one, was illustrated by the British cartoonist William Eli Hill, and it appeared in 1915. There are actually two faces in this illustration. Which one do you see? If you need help seeing them both, side by, this side-by-side shot should help a bit. Research has been done on this, and they find that typically younger viewers see the beautiful young woman and older viewers see the old hag. An old hag is an old, ugly woman with evil powers. 
Our sermon text can be like this illustration. Some read it and look at it and they see something ugly, like ancient patriarchal practices. And when Paul speaks of bondservants or slaves, our our hair can stand on end. Is Paul promoting slavery? Really? Well, the quick answer to that one is an emphatic no. And so this morning, we will take a look at the first of the three close-to-home relationships that Paul addresses here, and we will study them through the lens of the gospel so that we can see beauty instead of something ugly. For there really is no ugly here. We, we just hear Paul's words, and, and, and our fallen hearts want to go there. And so here is what I think we will see. God is a God of beauty and order. And just as no one likes to live in disorderly houses, the houses that are full of clutter, so too the relationships in our home and in our places of work are to reflect the divine beauty and order that God himself um, has in his beautiful heaven. And this is a good thing. In the preceding passage, Paul calls Christians everywhere to, to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts and, and the word of Christ to dwell uh, in you richly. And we have seen that, that if Christ is now our Lord um, and, and he has made us new creations in which we get to live and the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ-like lives, we will see that, that, that these new creation lives find themselves expressing the gospel in day-to-day routine experiences of life. At home, at the dinner table. At work, at the trading desk. Sadly, our homes and our workplaces are full of bitterness and selfishness and self-promotion. And they are so full of discord and conflict. Are they not? Surely God has a better way for us to live and work together. And he does. With this short nine-verse passage, Paul reveals the beauty of the gospel, how it applies to everyday lives. Today we will focus on the first grouping, husbands and wives. And how does Jesus, this is a question we'll try to answer, how does Jesus and his gospel make all things new, including our marriages? What I hope we'll see this morning is that in our daily lives, the gospel brings beauty and order that is pleasing, pleasing to God and to us, his children. As we will see this morning, there, there is a beauty and order to marriage that is to a marriage that is centered on Christ. We simply need to look past this ugly view that this text seems to show us and actually see the beauty that is here for us. And so that's how we're going to divide our time into two areas. First, we're going to look at the ugly view, and then we will look at the beauty of marriage. First, um, let's address this ugly view in this text. <laughs> Uh, the big idea here is that Paul, Paul isn't saying the ugly things p- people attribute to this passage. He doesn't hate women. He's not a misogynist. The gospel, actually, when you look at the gospel, it was freeing at the time it came into, the, um, into that ancient culture. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I went to a wedding of my friend's sister. The Lutheran pastor in this old, beautiful church read from the companion passage to this one, that is found in another letter of Paul's, the letter to the Ephesians. Here's what he wrote. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. After the ceremony, I walked out and I said to my friend, boy, that is quite the racket. If the minister can get the wife to buy into all this stuff, then the groom's got quite the future. A wife he can rule over and get to do whatever he wishes. Sign me up, I thought. And isn't that how most moderns respond to this text? They hear, they hear the words, wives submit, and all kinds of alarms go off. But let's take a moment to look at what Paul is not saying. First, submission is not grounded in any supposed superiority of the husband or inferiority of the wife. We know this is not true from what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. Paul writes, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is that it totally and completely levels the playing field for all, including men and women. Listen, hear me rightly. Men and women are equal in regards, in all regards. Our worth, our value, our status, we are completely equal. Second, submission does not mean a wife is to, um, is to follow should her husband lead her into sin. Christian women and men owe their first obedience to God. God is to be obeyed first and foremost. Third, submission does not mean that the wife must suppress her creative energy or, or adopt some passive approach to life in general, that she is to sit around tapping her toes, just waiting for her man to give her something to do. I encourage you to read Proverbs 31, and you will put this myth to rest. Fourthly, neither does submission entail silence. Some wrongly think that a wife lacks submissiveness if she criticizes her husband in a constructive way. We men need such constructive criticism. I, I cannot tell you how many times Leslie has pulled me aside and shared with me something I needed to hear so that I could be a better husband, father, friend, leader, you name it. Finally, submission does not mean the wife can never do anything for her own benefit, that she should never get involved in activities or ministries outside the home. These are, these are, these are all things that men have wrongly pressured upon their wives, and sometimes they take this text and, and they use it as their supporting basis. But this is a gross mischaracterization of this text. Men have used this passage in the Ephesian passage and, and others to cruelly silence and subjugate their wives. The Bible says you must obey me in everything, they declare with false piety. Then they sit on their throne and expect their wives to cater to them. God put me in charge. I'm the head of the house. What I say goes. Listen, the man's role as the head of the house is not intended for men to exalt themselves and live for their own selfish satisfaction at the expense of their wives. God did not give men this important role in the household so men would wield power for their own sinful pleasure. And listen, if men have any power from God in the marriage, it is not a power to crush or dominate or frustrate or demean. 
But is that not what many people think this passage is about? Ancient, patriarchal, male-dominated society rules that perpetuate abuse in the home. My friends, this is an ugly view. My friends, this is the wrong view. Let me begin to turn the picture a bit from the, from the ugly to the beautiful. Let's look at the beauty of marriage. As we do, we'll divide our time into two um, vantage points. First, the vantage point of the garden and the vantage point of the gospel. So the vantage point of the Garden of Eden. In the very first chapter of the Bible, God declares that he will create mankind in his image and they will be male and female. Genesis 1, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Try to, try to think this through. God is a trinity, one God, three persons. All three persons of the trinity are co-equal in every respect. And yet, what do we see? We see the Son submit to the Father. There is an authority and order in the trinity, and there is authority and order in mankind who is made in God's image. God first created Adam. Then in Genesis chapter 2, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Then God brought before Adam all the creatures of the earth, and Adam looked at them, but no animal would suffice. And then God put Adam into a sleep, and he took from his side a rib, and God formed it into a woman and brought her to Adam. And Adam said, yowza, 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 woo-wee. Okay, it wasn't exactly like that. But here's what we read. It's, he was fascinated um, and delighted in, 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 in Eve. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we read that the two became one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. Adam did not look at Eve and say, Finally, a subordinate to do my biddings. No, he rejoiced. At last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, at last, an equal to whom I can be joined to, spiritually and emotionally equal, but not the same. Her body was different. And therefore, they could be one flesh, physically as well as spiritually. When I officiate a wedding ceremony, I say these words. You will notice that Eve was taken from the rib of Adam. She was not taken from his head that she should rule over him, nor from his foot that he should walk over her. She was taken from his side, near his heart, that hand in hand they could go together throughout life. Well, then if Eve is Adam's equal, then why is he the head and Eve called the helper who submits? Well, this will never make sense unless you observe again the Trinity. God said, let us make man in our image, male and female. We will make them. First, understand this. God is triune. Tri meaning three, and yun referring to unity. 
There is one God who has existed forever in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is a unity. He is a community. Um, and so it takes more than one human being to image God. Think about that. Adam alone could not bear God's image. It requires at least two human beings. A unity of diversity, living in community. Cool, huh? Listen, when husband and wife come together in marriage and become one flesh, the pattern for this oneness called marriage is the Trinity itself. Now second, within the Trinity, are there not roles? Think about this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equally God, equal in glory and splendor. No one person of the Godhead is more worthy than the next. There is absolute equality. And yet, and yet the Son submits to the Father. Look at the, the words, um, Jesus' words in John 6.38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his death, Jesus prayed three times for his father to take away the cross, and each time he finished his prayer, how? And yet, not my will, but your will be done. My friends, we, we, mu we must let Jesus define the word submission. The biblical expression of submission is not equivalent to weakness, nor does it involve being in bondage or slavery. No, the biblical expression of submission is the exact opposite. Think about it. It requires the great exercise of power and self-control to willingly submit. Notice in our passage that children and bond servants are commanded to obey. But wives are called not to obey, but to submit. To submit is a voluntary action, to be done out of love, as a Christ-like offering. Submission in the biblical sense is beautiful and Christ-like. It requires strength and poise and power under control. Listen, Jesus was completely free, and he was completely equal to the Father, and yet he chose to live in submission. It wasn't out of any weakness, but rather his submission was an expression of his power and his love. Submission in the life of our Savior is a thing of glory. And so too in our lives. Wives, you model Christ's likeness when you live this out. Add to this the word God uses to describe Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam that he was creating his wife as a helper, a helper, not a slave, but an equal whose God-given role is to help. And women, you should know this all too well, we men need all the help we can get. Also, try to understand this. Being a helper is not a role for someone who is inferior. In fact, just the opposite. Did you know that the Hebrew word translated helper is often used in the Old Testament to refer to God as the helper of mankind? Surely God is not inferior to us, and yet he delights to be our helper. 
And so what the passage in Genesis is telling us is that the husband, even before the fall into sin, was incomplete without his wife, and that the husband will never reach his full potential apart from the help and input and support of his wife. But what we also see in Genesis in chapter 3, is that all hell breaks loose in Adam and Eve's relationship. Sin enters the world, and yet in love, God, God goes looking for Adam and Eve, and Adam blames his wife, and he blames God, and Eve blames the, the serpent. And from there on out, struggles that are today ever-present in marriage began. God first cursed the serpent and promised to send a Savior to undo all the brokenness. And then God said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Listen, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he, or it, your desire, shall rule over you. See that? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Desire in this sense is not a good thing. Um, sin, this is, this is Eve living in opposition to her husband belittling him, talking bad about him, blaming him, wishing that she was in charge, undermining his authority and decision-making. And then God said to Adam, Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is why, oh, so many men live for their careers. It's our curse. We bow to the God of career and success, all the while ignoring our wives and our children. And they pay the price for our sin. My friends, I'm convinced after years of pastoral counseling, marital counseling, I'm convinced that every marital problem finds its roots here in Genesis 3. But remember the, the hope here. Christ came to abolish the curse. He came to redeem, renew, and remake us, including our marriages. So far, Paul's letter to the Colossians has pointed out the fact that we are now new creations in Christ. So put off the old sinful flesh and put on this new life that is ours in Christ. And listen, as we live as new creations, with our lives centered on Christ and his work in us, our marriages become new too. So that is a quick rundown on the beauty of husband and wife from the vantage point of the Garden of Eden. Now let me finish by turning the picture all the way around for us. Let us see how the gospel in making us new creations turns Christian marriage into something beautiful. Let's look at the vantage point of the gospel of Christ. Paul is showing us something magnificent in our passage. Marriage is to be Christocentric, that is, centered on Christ. It is only because Christ has, has loved us by submitting to his Father's will, that we have any desire and power to submit to anyone. And it is also only because Christ has loved us with a self-sacrificing love that we can have any desire to love anyone else with a self-sacrificing love. And that, my friends, is what marriage is all 
about. Paul writes, uh, here we are, Colossians 3, 18 and 19, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Or as we read in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives are to be focused upon the Lord and honoring Christ by doing what is fitting in the Lord. This, this means the wife, because of her allegiance to her Lord, volunteers to live in such a way that her, with her husband that, that it brings honor to him. Not that she agrees with him all the time or even likes the way he treats her at times. No, she is determined to love him despite his faults why? Because Jesus loves her despite her faults. And so she is determined not to live like so many women who gossip and complain about their husbands behind their backs or worse, right in front of them and the kids. The wife who is alive in Christ is determined not to wait until her husband becomes the man she just wants him to be before she loves him. And husbands are to love their wives. Notice he doesn't say lord over your wives. He says love them. The model we are to follow is how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As Christ Jesus is the head of the church, God has ordained the husband to be head of the household. And as Christ has used his headship to love the church and to give himself up for the church, men, listen, so too husbands are to love their wives and give themselves up for her. To tenderly care for her. To desire inner beauty in her. Above your own comfort. To promote her holiness to comfort her anxieties, to bend over backwards so that she knows you value her and delight in her and not only live for her, but would gladly die for her. Husbands are sub to submit themselves to Christ and cry out in the Holy Spirit to God asking that they would be better men that they would die to their selfish, self-centered, career-focused lives, and instead they would love their wives as Christ loved the church. Now, I could be opening myself up for trouble here, but let me ask you, who has the harder calling? Wives in submitting to husbands who are often selfishly focused on their careers? Or husbands who are called to love with a Christ-like sacrificial love? A wife who complains behind his back that he isn't the man she married? I don't know. Both are impossible in our own strength. But listen, wives, when you, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, seek to live as fitting in the Lord, a power from above comes upon you. And though this upward call of Christ is hard, and it is, there is a beauty to it, and there is a glory and a joy that you get to experience as you live your life to please not just your husband, but ultimately your Lord.
And husbands, when, when you in dependence upon the Holy Spirit seek to love your wife as Christ loves the church, when that becomes your desire and you pray for it, a power from above comes upon you. And you will begin to die more and more to your old self and come alive more and more in Christ and how you love your wife and live to bestow all of God's blessings upon her. My friends, we've looked at a challenging passage and we have more to look at next week, so hold on to your balloons. Don't let them fly around. I admit that I've just barely scratched the surface with regards to biblical marriage. There is so much I've left untouched. Things like, what if a woman is married to an unbeliever? Paul's short answer is to, say, is to stay with him and shower him with Christ-like love. And, and in this, God may use you to lead your husband to the Lord. But what if she's in an abusive situation? The quick answer to that is to flee for the time being and seek help. Allow others to piece you and your marriage back together. Okay, I got to wrap up. I can't get off on too many tangents. If you have any questions, call me, email me, or perhaps join in our Grace Connect Coffee hour after the service. Now, let me finish with this story. I've told it before. But it's been a few years. I'll try not to choke up, but it seems to do that to me every time I think of it. Earlier, I told you of my experience at my friend's sister's wedding. Now, if you would, fast forward 10 years from then. I've become a Christian. I've fallen in love with a a girl named Leslie. And and I need to ask her father for her hand in marriage. So one day, uh, he and I went to play racquetball at his club. Before the game started, I said, uh, Eric, how about if I win, um, I get to marry your daughter? And he said something like, uh, okay, we'll see. And then he trounced my butt. Three games to nothing. He even let me use his expensive racket, and that didn't help. So I was left to ask for Leslie's hand the old-fashioned way, face-to-face. One evening, I got him alone at his home, and I mustered up the courage to ask. And he said, I will let you marry my daughter if you can answer this one question. Will you love her like Christ loves the church? And foolishly, without even thinking it over, I just burst out confidently, and I replied, well, yes, I will love her like Christ loves the church. It was later that night, I, I... as I thought through that task, that I realized this is impossible. Christ's love is so pure, so other-centered, so sacrificial, so longing for others to be presented in splendor without any blemish. There's no way. I had to later confess that, that I wanted to love her that way, but that I would no doubt fall short and be in need of, of her love and her grace towards me. My friends, that is the beauty of what Paul is saying in our passage. Christ has died to give us new life in him. And and we now must die to our old self and come alive in Christ. And and, And of great importance is how this works out in our homes. Men, it matters not what notoriety you get on Wall Street or in your career if you love not your wife and children. 
So my friends, this has to work out in our homes. I hope this morning you're able to see the the beauty of God's design for marriage. For those of you who are married or will one day be married, will you, by the grace of God, that daily rests upon you, seek to live for Christ in your marriages? Will you love your spouse as you have been loved, not by your spouse, but by how God has loved you? May God work his good pleasure in all of us. Let's pray. Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for making us in your image and giving us the calling to live as those who display your glory into your creation. We pray for our marriages, that we would die to ourselves and seek to honor you in all our relationships, including that precious relationship of husband and wife. Help us as men and women to submit to you, O Lord. May may your renewal in us produce beauty in our marriages. Amen.